Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. VPR is staffed by the Master of Public Policy students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia. I'm your host, Joshua Margulies. Welcome to Academical. In this episode, VPR Executive Editor James Leckie interviews Daniel Carey, Virginia's Secretary of Health and Human Resources. Dr. Carey was appointed to the position in January 2018 by Governor Ralph Northam. Before holding public office, he worked as a cardiologist and as an executive in the healthcare industry. Our interview touches on Medicaid expansion, the opioid crisis, needle exchange programs, and access to care more broadly. Enjoy. Uh, with the Medicaid expansion passed the most recent session, uh, how is the department preparing for the expansion? And with increasing costs of care nationally, do you believe Medicaid will be, continue to be affordable in the future for the state of Virginia? Well, uh, first of all, we're really excited that this, you know, th- at this time in Virginia, because expansion of Medicaid is historic. Never before has there been such an increase in health coverage in Virginia. So the 400,000 people, which represents about 5% of the Virginia population who will be newly covered is, is truly a, a wonderful thing. So we're, how are we preparing for it? The, in short, it's an all hands on deck situation. Um, the DMAS or the Department of Medica- uh, Med- Medical Assistance Services, DMAS, in Virginia is essentially the agency that runs our Medicaid program. And in Virginia, the Department of Social Services and local departments of social services handle uh, eligibility for a number of programs, including Medicaid. So this really is a, a team effort between local departments of social services, the uh, Virginia Department of Social Services, DMAS, as well as the Departments of Health that run a number of clinics that uh, also uh, serve med- the Medicaid population, and uh, and its workforce development is very much a part of the of this of, of this uh, teamwork because part of the way that Medicaid is going to be expanded in Virginia includes uh, an 1115 waiver that has work engagement or work requirements. So it really has been a team effort. And even before, when when it looked like, uh, even before the, the final bill was passed, we had preliminary discussions based on the progress uh, in negotiations with the General Assembly to, to kind of get started on what it would take uh, to be ready uh, for uh, as early as possible expanding Medicaid in Virginia. And, and in the end, it was uh, January 1st was the was the time that uh, the earliest that we would be allowed to expand Medicaid. So we have been meeting uh, on a weekly and every other week basis, various aspects of the team, going through all the the electronic systems that will need to be updated and are largely updated uh, as of this date. Uh, what would the eligibility rules need to be and how would we communicate those uh, within the, the information systems that local DSS, local departments of social service use, as well as other uh, other organizations that contribute to Medicaid expansion. So it really has been a, a, a team effort. There are IT systems. There's 
the agencies that I've mentioned. Uh, there's the communication element of a number of agencies. So it's, it's, and then there are a lot of community stakeholders that we've engaged with, both on the provider side, health systems and physicians and other, other providers of healthcare, and on the community advocacy uh, side. How do we connect better with these individuals that will be newly eligible? So that's how we're getting prepared, and we've got classic project management tools in place to make sure that we're we're going to be ready, and we will be ready uh, come January 1 to to provide the coverage, and, and we'll be ready in, in November when uh, we start enrolling uh, individuals into the program. So the second question you asked was the sustainability of the Medicaid program, uh, both nationally and in Virginia. And currently, about one in five Americans is covered by Medicaid, whether they're children and in Virginia, that's called the FAMOUS program, and in uh, or as adults. So it, it is it is a uh, significant part of the the health insurance uh, landscape, and uh, we our goal is to make it as cost effective as possible in Virginia. I think on the quality side, we have solid quality. We we are better than average in certain things, and there are some things we're below average that we are committed to improving. I think the real question is, how do we make sure that individuals get the preventive care that they need? And I think that's where there's real opportunity, is that because folks are who use health care, and they use it in emergency rooms, and they use it very late in the disease so that it is very expensive when, when they come into the hospital, that now we have an opportunity to provide coverage and, and also care for preventive services, routine maintenance, and to make sure that chronic conditions like heart failure, asthma, emphysema, uh, diabetes, high blood pressure, get the care they need at the most cost-effective site, which is usually uh, in the uh, in an ambulatory clinic in a in a physician or a nurse practitioner's office, uh, or in a federally qualified uh, health center, and or in a, a variety of uh, of, of different care settings that are not the emergency room and not uh, when folks get sick and have to be admitted to the hospital. So I think the cost containment aspect is going to be in making sure that individuals get the care they need and the focus is on prevention. And so I think that that's how we're going to make sure that this is affordable going forward. But good care is, is not cheap. That's, that's true. And we, we want our goal is to make sure that we have uh, as much of the high-value elements as possible and that we minimize or eliminate the low-value elements of care. So um, that's our perspective. Okay, thank you. And um, so our next question is regarding the opioid crisis. Uh, so in 2017, there were 72,000 overdose deaths nationally and 49,000 were involving opioids. Uh, Virginia actually has an overdose death rate below the national average, while Maryland has an overdose death rate at nearly twice the national average. Mm-hmm. Do you think this discrepancy is due to a difference in approach or demographics, or is it a little bit of both, and what more can we do to end this crisis? Well, I think, you know, uh, Tip O'Neill once said that all politics is local, and one thing I've learned traveling around the Commonwealth is that our addiction crisis is local. It really depends on on those specific elements in the local and regional uh, uh, communities that are influencing 
the crisis. So in states that it's predominantly uh, illicit, uh, injectable uh, forms of, of opioid abuse and other types of, of drugs, then the opportunity for that drug to get laced with fentanyl or with carfentanil, very powerful sedatives that make people stop breathing, and, and one of the, the main ways that there are accidental overdoses is that folks are using heroin that is laced with fentanyl. Fentanyl is a type of uh, narcotic that is very powerful and used in medical procedures, and it will make people stop breathing. And, and that's one of the, the known effects of any opioid at high dose is that you stop breathing. And that's how the majority of folks die. So if, if a crisis in a particular state or a particular region is mostly on the IV drug side of opioids versus the pill side or the diversion of, uh, of tablets and, and prescription opioids, then it's going to be experienced very differently. The death rate is, is a true crisis and each death is a tragedy that we want to prevent each and every death, and acceptable is zero. And how each state and each region of a state experiences that has to do a lot with what types of drugs folks are using, how much of it is, is diversion of, of prescription drugs versus uh, injectable drugs. And that, that, can, that can evolve over time. And we are, I won't say lucky in Virginia, we are somewhat fortunate in that we don't have the death rates that our neighboring states have. But that doesn't mean that our, our crisis isn't real and that we are not fighting to prevent uh, every death. And so I, I think the death rate is only one of the aspects. You can measure it in the number of folks who have the addiction and how many folks are in recovery, how many people with uh, substance use disorder or uh, opioid use disorder have access to services. I think there are a number of measurements, uh, and the death rate is a very important one, but but only one. And and some states have uh, a huge problem, and their death rate may be somewhat lower just because of the types of drugs that people are taking. So I think you've got to really look at it in a in a nuanced way. What is the what are the avenues in Virginia that we have to combat the crisis? I I think at its core the Addiction crisis is, is a crisis of, of isolation and desperation at the individual level, and, and that's uh, – and I say that only because that's what the experts share with me, and, and you've got to address the addiction one individual at a time because it, it has to do with uh, what kind of experiences people had. We're realizing that folks, if they've been uh, the victim of – of physical or sexual abuse in the home, or they they had other adverse childhood events, that their risk of addiction to a very, to opioids or other drugs is very very high. So there's a social determinants of the addiction crisis, and we we need to address that. And that has to do with educational opportunity. That has to do with uh, housing, and it has to do with uh, job opportunities. So there are those kind of social determinants of health that influence addiction. And then there's the treatment side. And I'd say one of the most important uh, elements in Virginia is that under Medicaid, the Addiction Recovery and Treatment Services Program 
so-called ARTS under Medicaid that started in 2017 is starting to have real results. It, it, it's meant that a number of people, often the most vulnerable that are covered by Medicaid, are now getting access to a variety of evidence-based services, whether it's inpatient detox, whether it's uh, residential treatment, whether it's outpatient uh, treatment. Whatever their appropriate uh, level of, of prevent or of treatment services is, depending on their individual condition, there is a there is coverage under the Medicaid program, and that's why Medicaid expansion connects with Virginia's approach to the addiction crisis because now those folks who are newly covered by Medicaid and have a substance use disorder will now have access to what are really uh, services that are setting the standard for the country. So the the team that put together that program uh, have a lot to be proud of, and we're starting to see the impact on people served uh, under the arts program, the, the the fact that they're getting services in the community, not in emergency rooms, and we're starting to see the the real benefits of access to services. So I, I think there's a lot to be done at the at the societal level in terms of job opportunity, educational opportunity, uh, helping uh, families stay intact on the prevention side, which is difficult but will need to be done to really prevent this in the future and reduce it. And then there's the treatment and recovery side. We need to be working on both aspects. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And on the treatment and recovery side, um, I saw that Virginia authorized up to 55 localities to create needle exchange programs, but only two have actually opted for this policy so far. And I know you've actually recently visited, um, I believe, the needle exchange program down in southwest Virginia. I think it's Lee, Wise, and Scott counties. Uh, these programs have repeatedly been shown to be effective tools for harm reduction. Uh, what would you say to the localities who have yet to opt in to these programs to convince them of their usefulness um, of these needle exchange programs? Right. And we, we've, got, uh, we've got two that have been approved. We've got several that are in uh, – one has been a, applied for, and we've got several other communities that, through a coalition, are interested. I mean, the General Assembly was very specific, and, and I think – there's some real wisdom in what they require. They, that you need a uh, a coalition to to uh, make the application, and that includes the health assets, uh, the local uh, Department of Health, it, it health department. It involves the local health systems, and most importantly, it involves law enforcement and uh, use of uh, needles to uh, inject illicit drugs. Uh, is a crime in Virginia. We acknowledge that. What the what you need participation of local law enforcement to understand on a practical level how they're going to enforce those laws differently because individuals are participating in needle exchange. Well, I think you indicated that there is 30 years of evidence that needle exchanges do several very important positive things. First, they decrease the amount of needles that are left in public bathrooms, that are left on schoolyards and left uh, where children and others can get stuck and per perhaps infected with communicable diseases that are prevalent in the IV drug-using population, namely hepatitis C, hepatitis B, and HIV. So the, 
the the needle exchange is more than that. The, we term it the comprehensive harm reduction programs because it involves it does involve needle exchanges, but it also involves testing for those uh, for those uh, uh, conditions so that people can be treated and be less likely to infect other people. And it also, and I think this is the most important element, and I'll, I'll describe my visit down in, in Wise uh, with an individual who came into the health department and signed up the day I was visiting uh, for the, the Comprehensive Harm Reduction Program. And that has to do with building trust between the IV drug-using community, many of whom have tried recovery before, but this is a chronic relapsing brain disease, so relapse is to be expected, that these folks are are uh, often struggling with uh, uh, getting back into recovery. So the more that we can do that builds trust with these folks who are not yet in recovery opens the door to recovery in the near future. And I'll just use the one example of the individual, a young man in his 30s, and uh, he is still using. He has cut back significantly. He is employed. He uh, is, uh, there, are, there are children in the home, and, and he is responsibly uh, parenting those children as best we can tell. And the point is that folks who have an addiction, until they get in recovery, we want to make sure that we're helping to prevent them from having more harm and from them be doing more harm to others in their household as well as to strangers, whether children in a schoolyard or law enforcement that uh, will also come into contact with them. So I, I think it's, it's key. This is just one of the aspects that we make sure that we move, we move folks with a medical condition and we, we need to take away as much as we can the stigma of this as a moral failing so it's a disease, it truly is a disease, and we don't judge people because they have diabetes. We don't judge people because they have uh, emphysema or asthma. We need to understand that, that because of a variety of factors, some individuals are more prone than others to becoming addicted and to be vulnerable to relapse, and we need to make sure that we treat this as the medical illness that it is. All right. Thank you. And um on counties like uh, Wise County, um, many counties in Virginia are considered health professional shortage areas, and they're mostly rural counties like Wise. Uh, how is the Northam administration working to increase access to care in places with this problem, like Southwest Virginia? Are you considering uh, advocating for residency expansion or rural scholarships for medical school, or do you think the scope of practice expansion for nurse practitioners will be a success? Well, I think you, you mentioned uh, the last issue, which was the uh, the increase in the scope of practice for nurse practitioners. I think we need to, to one, monitor that and see what that does for the access to care in places like far southwest Virginia where there are, there are shortages. And I, I do think we, we do have uh, uh, programs in, in Virginia uh, that – a number of private entities or, or nonprofit health systems have loan forgiveness and the like, and, and the federal government has loan forgiveness if you go to a rural or otherwise underserved areas. So, so making sure that 
Virginia is taking full advantage of the federal programs is an important element. I do think that the bottleneck often is at the residency level. I think that's one of the real challenges. And Virginia is uh, investing in primary care residency slots. And we, we have expanded, I think the number last year was 20 additional slots. And the focus was on primary care, although there were some surgical specialties that are also greatly, uh, 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 there are great shortages. So that's part of the solution. We're waiting to see how effective that has been. Um, we need to see where those folks locate after uh, residency. So I, I think that, uh, and by the way, residencies are predominantly funded by the federal government. And I think that's one of the real places that we need to continue to lobby with our congressional delegation is for expansion of residency slots at the federal level funded through Medicare. So I think that's important. I also think we need to see at the, uh, you've talked about the physician level, but I think we also need to see, uh, and I can give examples of this, that the, in terms of workforce development in not just in Lynchburg, where I was based, but all the smaller communities that we served, whether it was Farmville or Gretna or Brook Neal, that physicians were critically important. You've got to have a, a core group of physicians to help uh, provide uh, the high-level diagnostic uh, work. But many uh, advanced practice professionals, whether nurse practitioners or physician's assistants, were key to how we expanded access, especially to primary care services. So I think making sure that the uh, our Department of Health Professions is looking at the scope of practice to make sure that those, uh, those professions, those advanced practice professionals, are that it, coming to practice in Virginia is attractive, and to also make sure that uh, there is a way to, you know, individuals don't like to be directed. They, they like the, just like physicians that, whether it's nurses or physician's assistants or nurse practitioners or physical therapists and respiratory therapists, health professionals like other people often like certain amenities. And I, I do think uh, looking at what the state can do in terms of scholarships is something that we're looking into. We don't have a, a, a firm policy recommendation let, uh, yet. We're waiting to see a little bit on what the policy action from the last General Assembly, increase in the scope of practice of nurse practitioners, what effect that's going to have. And we're also looking at our investments in uh, both nursing schools uh, in particular and uh, around the Commonwealth, especially through the, the public institutions of higher learning as well as in our community college to make sure that they're turning out the healthcare professionals uh, that we need. And, and often in a place like far southwest, you know, what is the, what are the programs at that community, those community colleges in those regions? Are they making sure they're contributing to the, the health, uh, professional need, healthcare professional needs of that region? So those are some of the things that, that, that we're, uh, doing and some of the things that we're considering doing, uh, as we move forward. Thank you. And, um, if we just have one more question, um, I'd like to ask, uh, about Governor Northam's um, announcement that he wants to increase access to broadband uh, for both economic development and telehealth services. And how effective has telehealth been in Virginia so far? Does telehealth tend to save money or is it primarily an access solution? And are issues of reimbursement for physicians and other uh, 
um, healthcare providers still a major issue here? Well, first, uh, telehealth is is up and running in Virginia. It's not a futurist uh, type of thing. Around the Commonwealth, whether it's uh, many emergency departments, for example, use telehealth services to decide uh, to help decide whether a particular patient presenting with a stroke is a candidate for advanced therapies like something called uh, 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 thrombolysis or clot busting of a clot that is causing the stroke. And many institutions, even uh, very sophisticated institutions with lots of services, outsource that because one neurologist sitting in a room someplace in Virginia or someplace elsewhere in the country can more effectively and efficiently be available on a minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour basis to make those types of assessments um, repeatedly, and that's an efficient way, and that is present throughout uh, many areas of Virginia. In addition, uh, pioneers in Virginia of telehealth, like the pediatric cardiologist uh, Karen Ruban, Dr. Karen Ruban at UVA, and a number of other services that have followed in her footsteps serve clinics in far southwest Virginia with They've got a a camera on one end and a display and a camera on the other end and a display, and they have a true dialogue with uh, someone at the other end. Sometimes it's a a nurse practitioner, uh, someone who also is a provider, or it could be uh, a nurse or or a nursing assistant, And, and that is happening. One thing in Virginia we've done to promote services that under Medicaid, we don't penalize reimbursement because it's telehealth. At the national level, in the Medicare, there is a significant reduction in the reimbursement for the provider if it's done under telehealth as opposed to in a face-to-face encounter. We don't see that that makes any sense. We need across the country and across Virginia to make sure that uh, we use telehealth as one way to make sure that there's access to care and in, in, in services that are difficult to have in multiple communities. And sometimes that community is an inner city community, and sometimes that's in a rural community. So hard to, to uh, you know, shortage services like uh, dermatology, uh, services like ENT, uh, ear, nose, and throat uh, care uh, are, are very important. And uh, also the pediatric subspecialty. So in far southwest, uh, some of the hospitals get pediatric specialty care like pediatric gastroenterology or pediatric lung specialty or pediatric oncology, cancer care, can get that through, sometimes it's through UVA or sometimes through VCU, sometimes it's through uh, institutions in Tennessee. So it it is happening with a fair, um, you know, in my travels, I'm seeing it, uh, in a robust fashion, but I, I think there are barriers, especially at the Medicare level, that we need to correct. And that's where, again, we need to make sure that our congressional delegation is advancing uh, parity for telehealth services. So I think that's important. You mentioned broadband, and I think that is part of it. Uh, often hospitals, at least in the emergency room setting, those hospitals do have broadband uh, uh, capabilities. I think when you move out into the smaller clinics outside of the hubs, if you will, that there can be challenges. So I think that uh, you do need a fair amount of, of bandwidth to, to do telehealth, uh, but but certainly no more than doing a 
frankly, a Netflix movie. Um, uh, there is some buffering that can happen in a movie, but it, it really is a, a video uh, encounter. And I think that what we're, what we're doing in this administration is understanding what are the true barriers. In certain communities, if they haven't developed a relationship with providers that can offer telehealth, um, in some uh, instances, it's really because uh, Medicare has been a barrier, and until we change that payment penalty to telehealth versus face-to-face services, that's not going to get better. Um, we do make sure that under Medicaid coverage in Virginia that telehealth services are fully covered. So that's been our approach. And I, on the on the development of broadband, I, I'm not an expert on the, the actual technical development and how we're going to do that, whether it's with uh, tobacco settlement uh, funds or other funds available in in Virginia, but the governor is uh, very much uh, in support of that, and other secretariats like Commerce and Trade are exploring how to accelerate access to broadband because it's not just on the health side; it's on uh, making sure that businesses are able to expand and we're able to attract new businesses that 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 need broadband and access to the internet to to be uh, to be competitive. So. That's really been our approach. Okay, thank you. All right, well, thank you very much for your time. And uh, it's after five, and I and I've I've got another uh, another uh, appointment, so I will I'll, I'll get to that. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right, thank you very much. We really appreciate it too. You can follow us on Twitter at VA Policy Review and on Facebook and LinkedIn at Virginia Policy Review. If you would like to contribute to our print publication, please visit us at virginiapolicyreview.org. Submissions for our fall 2018 issue are now open, but closing soon. We will accept submissions on a rolling basis until October 28, 2018. Research for this episode was provided by James Lucky. Editing was done by yours truly. Our artwork comes courtesy of Brian Kim. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm your host, Joshua Margulies. Until next time, be excellent to each other.